This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Chris Fraser, author of Late Classical Chinese Thought, published in 2023 by Oxford University Press. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy, Chris. Uh, thanks, Malcolm. Good to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. Let's let's dive in. Your book focuses on a pretty short period of time, at least when it comes to the history of Chinese philosophy. It's a short period of time, just 100 years in the third century uh, BCE. Before we dive into all the details, can you give the listeners a brief summary of what your book aims to do with these 100 years and, and what it argues about them? When we look at the, the classical period of philosophy in China, what we find is it's almost like it's building up to a climax during this relatively short period uh, before um, the Qin dynasty establishes you know, the, the imperium that uh, unifies China. Um, and that's an intellectually and especially exciting period, and I wanted to write about that period. Now, part of the motivation was that the Oxford history of philosophy is, is intended to present alternative uh, approaches to interesting periods in uh, the history of philosophy of every tradition, um, and they encouraged the idea that we would take, you know, some, some something of a different approach uh, to the subject. So that was one motivation. Um, another, uh, sorry, another aspect of it was that there are a number of texts uh, that actually re- record what are very, very important ideas from this period that tend to be neglected. So standard histories of philosophy tend to focus on, um, you know, a canonical list of great figures uh, and texts associated with those figures. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with approaching the subject that way. In fact, that's an important way to approach it. But if we want to fill in some of the richness of the subject matter, uh, sometimes we want to take an alternative approach. Um, And that's what I'm doing in this book. In particular, uh, there are works such as the all the material collected into a compendium called Guanzi and material collected into another compendium called the Li Shu Chunqiu that are just not taught in standard uh, courses on Chinese philosophy and they're not really discussed very much in standard histories of Chinese philosophy. And I wanted to show that this material is really you know, deserving of attention. Uh, it's all got all kinds of philosophically interesting stuff in it. Um, and at the time, it represented you know, very important positions uh, in the in, in the discourse. Um, so another aim was to do that. And then a third aim with this particular project was, uh, I don't think that, that anybody, at least not writing in a, a European language, uh, has previously treated that period topically, rather than in terms of a canonical list of figures. So this book is organized topically. We have one chapter on metaphysics, we have one chapter on what you and I would call epistemology, you know, chapter on moral psychology, and so on. And by approaching the subject that way, uh, I'm able to really show how you know different texts are presenting points of view that at the time were very much in conversation with each other, that there were debates going on and they were arguing with each other uh, about various points. Great. So we'll get into the texts as we dig into the each of the, the chapters, but that's a nice sort of high-level summary of what you're doing with the book. What got you interested in this period of classical Chinese philosophy to begin with? Uh, well, uh, this was one of my formative interests as an undergraduate, actually. Uh, I started off being very interested in Zen Buddhism and in Taoism. Uh, and uh, the main Taoist text that I was interested in is the Zhuangzi, which I'm still interested in. Um, and very early on, um, I learned, and then it was reinforced uh, by my dissertation supervisor, Chad Hansen, 
that if you really wanted to come to grips with the thought of the Zhuangzi, you, you absolutely needed to really know a lot about the entire context of that period. Yeah. So, and I think that's something that comes across in the book too. the, the, the context of the period, you get a sense of how these texts are, are engaging with, with one another. Something else that, that I noticed in the book is that in your introduction, you spent a lot of time explaining the history of these texts and even down to how they were compiled, what, what they were written on in some cases. And that, that doesn't always happen in a, in a book that's about philosophy. So why do you think these, these facts matter so much for our understanding the philosophy in these texts? That's, that's a really good question. And, and it's, it's, it's worth explaining, and it's important for readers to understand uh, why that's important. And that's why I spent quite a bit of time on it. In fact, I actually spent even more time on it than you see in the finished book, because there's an appendix treating this material. And the, the content of the appendix started out as part of the introduction. And one of the readers of the book said, hang on, I think it's just too much of this, you know, relatively technical stuff for the introduction of a book that's aimed at a general audience. Um, and, and that person said, I, I don't by any means suggest uh, omitting it. Let's just move it to, a, to an appendix. Um, okay, so what's going on there? Um, well, um, if we want to understand early Chinese philosophy and we want to we want to work on early Chinese texts and understand what's going on in them, the first thing that we need to understand is that people who were writing back then did not have the concept of a book. Nobody wrote books. Not only that, they don't appear to have had the concept of an author of a book or an authored work. So all of the texts we study are compilations. They're, they're all anthologies. They're all compilations of bits of short writing. <laughs> Uh, that would have originated as, uh, as, as short comments or very, very short sort of paragraph-length essays um, ranging from uh, 500 words to maybe 2,000 words. Um, uh, so you would rarely, any, no one would, would have written anything longer than a couple thousand words uh, as one piece of writing. And then a lot of this material, uh, whoever wrote it, would write it down and, and they wouldn't sign their name to it in any way. And they didn't really have this concept that an author, you know, controlled the content of a text that was attributed to them. So it's certainly possible that you and I might have a philosophical conversation and I might go home and write up some thoughts. And the next time we met, I might, I might present them to you and you might take them home and read them and think, you know, this, this is kind of interesting, but I disagree with him about such and such a point. And you might add a paragraph to uh, the text that I had presented to you. Uh, maybe recontextualizing it or um, commenting on it in some way, or maybe expanding, if you did agree with me, maybe you'd be expanding it uh, in some way. Um, so the result is that we get these very interesting collections of writings, um, which when I was an undergraduate, it was kind of hard to explain to people, you know, what exactly we're looking at. But nowadays, with the rise of social media, it's very easy to explain to people what we're looking at. What we're looking at is something like a long thread of blog posts with comments that are all anonymous, right? And that actually happens uh, on the internet nowadays. So when we're reading some of this material, we want to look at it and read it as if that's actually a conversation going on in there. Um, that's one point. Now, another point is that even when some of the material, suppose we're, looking, we're talking about the Xunzi, for instance, I think much of what's in the Xunzi could have been written by this teacher, Xunquang, uh, or by students very close to him. And so to some extent, it might have his imprimatur. Um, even if that's the case, it's not a, a single work. It's a collection of works by one person or other people associated with him, probably spanning several decades because he had a long career. So clearly there's going to be some development in the thought um, of this collection of works. There, it, it's not going to be completely consistent. So when we're looking at the material, even in cases where we think there's a high degree of consistency, we still need to be prepared to see some developments or, or possible minor inconsistencies. And so when we're reading the text, we can't read it as if it's someone's, you know, PhD dissertation that's just been produced. When we approach a modern uh, signed philosophical work, we have certain expectations about the internal consistency of the work. We expect that we can um, pretty much randomly uh, extract a, a sentence or a paragraph and say that, that represents that person's position. Uh, we think that we can extract a sentence from chapter one and another sentence from chapter four and put them together and say the two of these together represent, you know, uh, that person's position. We're allowed to add together different parts of, of the position. And when we're, when we're working with these early Chinese texts, we can't do that. 
Uh, that, that's not the way to approach them. Uh, and in some cases, we just have no idea even who, who wrote them. Uh, so um, that might raise worries in some readers' minds um, about uh, interpretive coherence. So normally we interpret a work uh, as being internally coherent on the assumption that it was produced by a particular author at a particular time to present a particular point of view. And here we're suggesting that these, these texts were not produced that way. So does that mean that in interpreting them, anything goes? Uh, and I needed to include a bit of a discussion about that because, well, no, it doesn't. Because if we think again of the blog post, you know, the, the thread of, of posts analogy, um, there's still a kind of coherence in play here. It's the coherence of a conversation rather than the coherence of a single integral work. But you still have a sort of coherence. Uh, and so I needed to explain, you know, what, what that background is and how, for instance, in discussing this period, I virtually never talk about the name of any author because these aren't really so-called authored uh, works. Yet there still is a fairly rigorous basis uh, for interpreting them. And then just to wrap up, um, another reason for the lengthy discussion in the book is that the, the details of each of those collections of writings, how they came together and what the relation between the writings you know, in the collection is, uh, are different for every collection. Um, there, there's no one general description that applies to all of them beyond that, that just that you know, umbrella remark that they're all anthologies. Right. So when we're looking at, for instance, the Zhuangzi versus Shunzi, the, these are going to be constructed in different ways. And so interpretive practices are going to have to be refined in attending to what kind of text we're looking at. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Case. So there are, there are regions of the, you know, there are sections of the Zhuangzi where you have material that is really, uh, you know, very distinctive and quite different uh, from the, the central motifs and themes of other sections of the Zhuangzi. And whereas in the Xunzi, um, it, it's fairly consistent. I mean, it, they, they have a roughly consistent point of view that is being defended in most of the material. Right. Yeah. Good. So let's dive in then to these six chapters of the book. We have, I'll just list them out here for, for listeners. We have the way, the state, ethics, ethical cultivation, epistemology, and then a concluding chapter, language and logic as one topic. And in each of these, as you say, you take readers through these eight different collections. Um, not not always, I think, all eight in each, but each each one is pretty, pretty uh, uh comprehensive, and you focus on the topics, as you say. Um, now, in the book, I believe you say that readers can take up the chapter separately, but it seemed to me in reading that the first chapter, The Way, is pretty crucial for the ones that, that follow. Uh, so, so that leads me to my first question, which I realize might be unanswerable on some philosophical views, but what is the Tao, and why did you start with it? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, the, the, what it is, that's, that's a really difficult question. Why did I start with it? That's, that's a relatively easy one. So one of my, my main theses uh, about our interpretation of early Chinese philosophy, and I, I could also argue it extends to later Chinese philosophy as well, but we'll just focus on the early stuff, um, is that um, structurally, it's all organized around this, this question of what is the Tao, and that that the, the, the centrality of that question simply, it doesn't simply affect the, the topics that they talk about, but the way they approach the topics and the way they think of the answers and how they think of human agency and how they think of you know, what it is to know something, that there are subtle ways in which the questions themselves and the range of potential answers are all structured by this focus on Dao. And Dao is a, a path um, I live in Hong Kong, where we speak Cantonese, and it is the modern Cantonese word for road. Um, and uh, the idea is that we're, we're generally, you know, like in asking philosophical questions, we're, we're not going to ask, say, how do things stand? Or what principle articulates, you know, the good? Or what, what general ethical principle articulates how we should behave? That they're not going to formulate the questions that way. They're going to formulate them in terms of what path shall we follow? How do we follow that path? What is the path that the world is following? Um, and because they formulate the questions, you know, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, because of the thinking in that, in that way, 
um, they think they they're naturally drawn, for instance, to thinking of knowledge in relatively pragmatic terms, and to explaining knowledge as a kind of competence. They're fairly naturally drawn to talking about language, uh, primarily in terms of conventions of use, um, rather than just representational content, for instance. Um, and they think of ethics as a pattern of activity over time, rather than something you can formulate in a static principle. Uh, and so, it, you know, in, in various ways, it affects the problems they're asking, the shape of the problems, and then what they think of as an appropriate answer. And then also just sort of the angle uh, from which they're appro approaching these problems. So it is worth just starting straight off by talking about what, you know, what Dao is and why they're talking about it. Um, and then when we go a little bit deeper to talk about what it is, well, it, it, it has a lot of different senses and uses. Um, and I wouldn't, I, I, I don't think that I can probably just, you know, uh, list them all because I expect there may be others that I haven't thought of yet. Uh, but one obvious one is that the path, you know, the normative path that you might follow. Uh, so how you might act in life, how you might go on. Another is the, the descriptive. So you have a normative versus descriptive distinction here, the path that you actually follow, as opposed to the ideal path that you should be following. Typically, it's used in ethical context to refer to you know, the ideal path we should follow. Um, but um, the Taoists, in particular, step back and sort of adopt uh, what we might call a meta-ethical, or maybe more accurately, we call it a meta-Dao um, stance on this concept of Tao, and they start reflecting, they, they start engaging in second-order reflections about the very nature of what it is to be a path. Um, another use of the word, uh, which shows up as soon as we start to try to talk about it in English, is if we interpret Tao as something like a way, it's both the, you know, the, the actions you perform, the path of conduct you follow, and also how you follow it, the way you do it. Uh, so it's what you do, but also the way you do it. And so we also have a lot of attention to, in effect, the style um, by which you follow the Tao. That's part of the Tao as well. Um, and then a, another uh, point that I treat in that chapter is that um, a number of early thinkers, perhaps most prominent here would be the, the early Maoists, uh, but, but pretty much at one point or another, almost everybody, um, adopts what, for convenience, I'll call a naturalist stance, on which they try to find authority for or justify their conception of Tao by tying it in some way to nature, to, to the, the natural world. Um, so um, the most naive statement of that view might be something like, the Tao we should follow is the Tao that somehow nature has programmed us to follow. Uh, another variation of view might be, nature itself follows a certain sort of Tao, and that's the appropriate Tao for everybody to follow. We just have to recognize what that is. Um, the Maoists have a, a, a theological take on this. The Maoists think that nature is in effect a, a kind of deity. Um, they think of it as a sky deity. And they think that that sky deity, which they call Tian, actually follows a certain Tao. Uh, and that because Tian is very wise, Tian is able to recognize the correct Tao. And therefore, we can learn from observing the, the deity what the correct Tao is, and figure out what we should do in order to conform to that Tao. Um, so you've got a lot of different schools in one, you know, one way or another trying to tie their conception of the normative path to follow to some aspect of nature, either the path that nature follows or the path that nature you know, uh, kind of embeds in us when we were born, uh, or the path that nature presents to us to follow. And Another, you know, tendency that we see uh, in early Chinese thought is that, again, it's, it's the generally Taoist texts that do this, is they kind of step back and think in very, very general terms about whether or not nature actually has a Tao that it follows. Um, and that's where we get the sorts of ideas that we find in, in the Tao Te Ching, for instance, uh, about there being some very mysterious, very fundamental sort of pathfulness of the world that in some sense grounds every conception of Tao, but cannot be articulated uh, because it itself is indeterminate and is, is more like a, an open field than a narrow fixed path for us to follow. So uh, in the structure of the book, yeah, it did seem like it was worth trying to explain some of those issues and then explain a number of different takes on those issues that we're likely to find. 
And then we can easily see, I think, as you said, as you read through the book, if you do start with chapter one, you can see how some of those ideas are, are supporting the different takes that different texts offer on other questions as well. Uh, so when you're talking about the Taoists, who are the Taoists in your view in the book? So I don't really treat uh, the Dao Te Ching uh, in this text. I'm, I'm considering it to be just a little, most of it at least, to be just a little bit earlier than the period I'm trying to focus on. Um, and it, it's, it's good of you to ask that question because Taoist is a very, very vague term. And it wasn't a label that was actually used during this period. It, it was a, a retrospective label invented by uh, Chinese scholars after this period. So they're, they're looking back and labeling people Taoists or certain texts Taoists, but those texts and the people who produced those texts would not have thought about themselves that way because the label simply didn't exist. Um, and it doesn't seem that they had a general label for what they were doing. Uh, but when we're using the label in this particular context, we're referring uh, primarily to the, a, a fairly wide range of ideas that we find in the Zhuangzi. Um, and then selected material that's in the Guanzi and the Annals of Lü Buwei, the Chinese name is Lü Shi Chunqiu. Um, and then in this case, I was also looking a little bit at some uh, silk manuscripts that had been recovered from the archaeological site at Maolongtui. Uh, and, and again, the categorization uh, or the intellectual affiliations of that material is, is very much up, uh, up for discussion. Uh, so I, I don't want to suggest authoritatively that that's just Dallas material, but it's clearly related to it uh, in various ways. Great. That's helpful. Uh, primary so, focus then would be Zhuangzi. The question that I would have to leave us uh, or to move us from this section to the rest is what might you say is maybe the biggest or the most central controversy involving the Tao in the Warring States period? And, and what was at stake there? Oh, what's what's the content of it? So the, the Tao refers to, um, you know, the, 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 the appropriate path of personal conduct and social political relations, social political conduct. Uh, and so the, the driving question is, you know, what is the Tao? Uh, and, you know, a, a, an auxiliary question is, and how do we follow it? You know, if, if we identify what it is, how do we manage to, uh, to conform to it? Um, and you've got some... Uh, some responses to that issue that advocate a very sort of activist uh, authoritarian uh, approach to Dao guided by political leadership um, in some cases, which would actually coercively, you know, force people to go along with a certain conception uh, of the Dao. And then you've got, uh, especially in the Zhuangzi, you've got a response <clears throat> along the lines of, well, first of all, um, there cannot be any general account of it that would apply to everybody. Um, there's no, you know, uh, justified way of um, arguing that a particular Tao is privileged and therefore should be uh, forced on everyone. Um, and second, uh, the best way to follow the, you know, the justified Tao is uh, something more along the lines of a laissez-faire government, in which you allow people. Uh, to express certain tendencies uh, that come inherently to them, given uh, their capacities and the context in which they find themselves. Um, so that's that's just the central driving question of the entire discourse, really. Yeah, and that brings us right into the second chapter on the state, uh, which is really about political philosophy and, and, and to some degree too, as you point out, ethical philosophy, these two are not neatly carved, carved apart in this context. Um, so maybe let's step back for, for a minute. I called this a warring states period a minute ago, and I'm not sure that we talked about this. I think that might be relevant for understanding what's going on in, in these, in these debates. Can you tell us a little bit about how Chinese society was structured then so we can appreciate what's the, the debates about the state? Right. So, so strictly speaking, we should call it something like proto-China. Um, so this is pre, pre, you know, the, what we know as the Chinese world during the pre-imperial period. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the region that we're talking about is much smaller uh, than the region of t today's China, today's Chinese state. Um, and it's divided into numerous smaller states, uh, roughly in the way that we think of Europe. Uh, so you've got a number of, of uh, you've got various smaller kingdoms. Um, at this point, 
the history is really complicated. Initially, these these various kingdoms, these various states, regarded themselves uh, as all subordinate to a previous dynasty. But during this period, um, the previous dynasty has waned so much in power, and the individual states have gained so much power that they're asserting themselves um, as uh, independent states. And many of the leaders of these states um, have the aim of unifying a, a new empire under their own rule. So you've got uh, constant competition between states, and in some cases, you've got out, you know outright warfare uh, between them, along with a series of shifting alliances uh, between the states for mutual defense, uh, or in some cases, mutual aggression. So uh, all of the writers of the period are acutely aware uh, of this social and political background. Um, all of them are responding to what they regard as widespread social and political disorder uh, and proposing various ways of rectifying that disorder or coping with the disorder. Yeah, and one thing that struck me in the chapter is the appeal to something like a state of nature in multiple of the texts. And typically, for people familiar with Western philosophy, that's associated with Hobbes, right, who was in his own sort of warring states uh, period, you might say, in the Civil War. Um, so, but how do these thinkers understand the state of nature and what do they conclude about it from what the state, about what the state might need to look like, what governance should be? Yeah. Um, okay. It, it's not obvious how to give one general answer to that question. Uh, you can so, take each one at a time, maybe talk about the different texts. That's fine. Yeah. Um, I might not remember them all, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, uh, one reason I included that is it, it's interesting to look at, you know, what different traditions have to say about the origin of the state. And in, in Chinese thought, uh, the justification of political authority tends to not be a, a really explicit, prominent issue. But by looking at what they have to say about the origin of the state, you can kind of extract or, or at least, uh, you know, it, it interpolate what you think uh, their their views on uh, the justification of authority might be. And I thought it was very interesting to look at what different texts had to say about the origin of the state. One reason being that many people are not aware that there is this tradition in Chinese thought of of talking about the transition from a state of nature uh, into a state of uh, an organized political society. Um, now, one thing that's intriguing is that when you look at these different accounts of the state of nature, uh, they assume very different things about how things were before the rise of uh, organized political societies. Um, some of them, uh, I, I would say in Xunzi, for instance, um, you have a view that it's not really well developed, it's just sketched. Uh, but it, it's a little bit like a Hobbesian view uh, in that Shunzi sees uh, the original state of nature as one in which people come to conflict with each other uh, because they're all pursuing the objects of their desires and there are inadequate resources to fulfill everybody's desires. Um, so this is not identical to Hobbes's uh, conception of people coming uh, into conflict with each other over their pursuit of what he calls felicity. Um, but, but there's some similarities between the two of them. Um, and then that contrasts, for instance, with uh, an older version of a state of nature theory uh, in the Chinese tradition, that of the Moists, who hold that in a state of nature, people would come into conflict because uh, there's no unity in values. There's no unity in ethical norms. And the Moists see people as all very deeply committed to their own conception of what's right or wrong, their own ethical norms. Uh, but unable to live together uh, harmoniously because they disagree about what those norms are. And they're all interfering in each other's business and telling each other what's right and wrong and, and how other people should change uh, what they're doing. So the Maoists think that you exit the state of nature by finding a way to unify uh, the norms that everybody's going to act on. And we've got a number of, of other um, conceptions of the state of nature as well. There's one involving uh, the, the strong dominating and abusing the weak. Uh, and there are others in which basically moral teachers emerge. Um, maybe what's distinctive of all of these in the Chinese tradition is that there, there tends to be, uh, in that, that move, that exit from the state of nature, 
there tends to be an element of a kind of moral leadership and moral identification. So it seems that at some point, people come together because leaders have emerged who are either admired, morally speaking, or have proven themselves to be virtuous and knowledgeable, or have been selected as the people who are going to draw everyone's moral values together, uh, or who are imposing, in, in, in the Shunzian case, who are imposing um, kind of a regime of moral values on people who are too ignorant to understand them themselves. But in each case, it seems that, that part of the, you know, the, the move to establish the legitimacy of political society and part of what's involved in getting people to identify with it uh, is getting them to, uh, to, to identify morally with the values that that society is going to promulgate. And this is you know, deeply intertwined with the traditional Chinese conception of the jur, or rule by virtue, uh, the idea being that uh, at least part of what's involved in a stable, successful political regime is that the rulers display and manifest certain sorts of virtues and that people identify with those virtues and for that reason identify with the rulers and are willing to obey them. Um, and of course, that's very different from, say, a social contract theory. Uh, and there's no conception, for instance, of uh, people somehow starting off with a kind of authority over themselves, which they then contract or license to uh, the state. You don't have any picture like that. Right. And so taking Shunzi uh, as, as an example of, of this transition, you have these sort of sages, I suppose, who are formulating norms, but also importantly, norms for ritual. So we're not talking about just sort of laws that are passed by, uh, well, it wouldn't be a legislature in this case, it would be the, handed down by, by an emperor, but we're also talking about other sorts of norms, um, sort of ritual, uh, or he talks about music, he talks about sort of um, ways of managing people's desires. I think this is an, a, a part of the conception of the state that I think is, at least I found interesting, the relationship between ritual, propriety, and the sort of these political norms. Is, can you speak to that a little? Yeah. Um, that's a very, very rich question. There are many dimensions to it. Now, in the Shunzi, I don't think this is entirely, I don't, I'm not sure there's a paragraph that puts this point explicitly, but you can very easily tie together three or four paragraphs of the Shunzi uh, into a picture on which um, the, our emergence from a state of nature into political society is also at the same time a process of us becoming more fully human. Because Shunzi thinks that to be, you know, what, what distinguishes humans from animals is, uh, in effect, our political culture. Um, and that if humans do not live in uh, organized political societies, then we, we somehow are living a subhuman life. We're failing to be fully human, as he understands it. So in other words, to become human is a social and cultural achievement that can only be carried out in the context of political society, uh, for Shunzi. So that's, that's one interesting feature uh, of the Shunzian view. Another is, as you, as you mentioned, that the, the organizing norms that are imposed on society are these norms of ritualized propriety. So ritual propriety covers everything from things like saying please and thank you and shaking hands at appropriate times to um, conducting wedding ceremonies and funerals and, and things like that. And in, in Shunzi and in much of, uh, of Confucian philosophy, you, you find this approach to ethics that's uh, formally speaking, um, so in terms of the content, you might have various virtues, but in terms of some sort of explicit um, norm or instruction to follow, formally, uh, you've got these norms of ritual propriety. So instead of thinking in terms of uh, principles like the, the principle of utility or you know, some version of a, a categorical imperative or something like that, they're thinking at the level of how you train yourself to be the sort of person who treats other people uh, according to appropriate etiquette, that etiquette ends up being uh, a, a core guideline to how we interact with others. Now, when you think about it, there's something there's something very you know uh, insightful uh, about that approach because we might think etiquette etiquette it's it's sort of trivial and it, it's very contingent. You could have different forms of etiquette in, in different cultures, and that, that's all true, of course. But part of what goes on with training and etiquette is training to notice our relations 
to others and to notice different people's needs and how to coordinate the fulfillment of these needs and how to achieve a certain sort of smooth flowing, uh, harmonious interaction with other people. And when you look at it at that level of generality, you can see that etiquette is uh, fulfilling many of the, what we might think of as the ends or functions uh, of ethics um, more broadly construed. So that's one aspect of, of this emphasis on ritual propriety. Now, another aspect, and, and this is really quite interesting, is that Shunzi traces the origin of political society to these ancient sage kings' um, response to conditions in the state of nature. And the response that's identified repeatedly in the Shunzi uh, is that they, uh, in the state of nature, you had disorder arising from conflict um, over scarce resources, and the sage kings loathed or hated this disorder. In Chinese, the phrase is wu qi luan. Uh, so they, they, they thought it was awful. They thought it was loathsome. And that's something of what you might, you know, I would characterize that as an aesthetic response. Uh, so it's going back to like these, these sagely figures emerging and, and basically finding this a mess that we need to clean up in some way uh, because it's so displeasing. Um, now, it's also, you know, strictly in terms of utility, it's also bad for everybody. But the way the text, you know, phrases uh, their initial motivation, they don't emphasize uh, that consequentialist side of it so much as this more aesthetic side of it. And so they invented a system uh, by which to impose order uh, on this state of disorder. And the key aspect of that system uh, that they imposed was that it divided up society into various social roles. And each of these social roles was associated with certain duties and certain norms of ritual propriety. So the norms of ritual propriety are very, very closely integrated with a system of social norms, uh, excuse me, a system of social roles uh, that within the Shunzi is understood to be a hierarchical system involving political roles and, and kinship relations. So, yeah, mm, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, and then of course, in in the chapter towards the end, you point out that this is not the prevail or the only view, or maybe even the prevailing view. I don't know in this time that the the Zhuangzi and uh, uh, other texts is, is escaping my my mind. The Guangzi uh, criticize criticize this sort of top down. Um, approach to governments. Right. right. So Shunzi is very, I mean, it's very heavy handed and it's very top down. Um, and, and for, uh, for understandable rhetorical reasons, the, the Shunzi, you know, the writers of that text have a certain investment in uh, a tradition. And if they were to suggest that uh, any of us could somehow come together and think up an appropriate set of norms by which to organize society, it would tend to rob their tradition of authority. So they don't want to allow that. They want to insist that only these ancient sagely figures uh, were in a position to, to you know, to bootstrap um, society into into this hierarchical, well organized, orderly uh, structure, uh, and that once that's done, we shouldn't tamper with the system. Yeah. So so let's look at the chapter on ethics because. You already started to mention some of these categories like consequentialism. You spent some time talking about different interpretations of the ethical theories, consequentialist, deontological, and so on. I was curious. I wanted to step back a little bit and see if you could say something about how you engage in this kind of reconstruction, given that, as, as you've emphasized, these texts are very different than, say, um, you know, even consequentialists like uh, you know, utilitarians that we have in the sort of modern period, uh, and they're not labeling their theories in this way. And some of them are dialogues and stories. How how do you think about pulling out from these texts commitments to these uh, sort of um, ethical approaches? Yeah. So we obviously we want to be really careful, and we want to uh, do everything we can to avoid distorting the views in the text by imposing any sort of inappropriate label on them. Um, but I think some of these labels are loose enough and, and general enough uh, that they're likely to, to fit in certain uh, circumstances. So the, the consequentialist label um, I'm fairly comfortable with because we do have texts that are pretty much directly saying, in the case of the Mullis, 
pretty much directly saying that what's right and wrong is determined by what promotes a, a certain list of goods. Um, and, and, and that that pretty much satisfies, uh, you know, a widely accepted definition of what uh, consequentialism is. Now, what's interesting, of course, about the Moist is that the goods in question, at least in, in early Moism, um, are all social goods. None of them are individual goods and something like individual happiness or pleasure or the, the welfare of individuals qua individuals is not really uh, considered. Um, so it's a, a very deeply communitarian uh, sort of theory. Um, it, in, in treating the Schwinze, it's kind of interesting to, to just sort of look at it and see if we can identify in, in these various discussions, it, is there some, something that's functioning as a basic good? You know, as, as a basic value, uh, and if so, does that tell us something about the the basic structure of the theory? Although I think that in treating the Shunzi itself, in you know, in that discussion, I I do say, look, you know, for the purposes of understanding what's going on, it's worth considering this. It's worth looking at this, and and there are here are a couple of construals uh, of the theory, and then at the same time, we also want to remind ourselves that the, the theory hasn't been formulated by someone who's trying to tick off certain boxes or fit it into. A certain sort of category, um, and so it, it just may not, you know, conform to any of our definitions of mathematical theory. I mean, then when we look at some of the other views, like I, I spent some time treating a view that I, I found in the Guanzi, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. Uh, I found some texts in the Guanzi um, that I, I myself had previously uh, studied them before, um, but hadn't really done anything with this material uh, in my research. Uh, and then I realized, oh, there's very rich stuff here that almost nobody talks about. And there's an ethical approach in the Guanzi that is very much what we might call a, a role ethics. It's all centered around uh, different social roles and relations. And it doesn't attempt in any way to tie them all together uh, under the rubric of some one general moral principle. And what I suggest in the book is that we should recognize that as a, you know, a type of ethics, that we shouldn't think that it's uh, inferior in some way because it doesn't conform to a certain conception of you know what its ethical system should look like. Um, it is its own sort of system. It looks kind of messy because the writers probably think this really reflects you know how ethical life is structured. It's just that messy, um, and I think that's very interesting. That tends to broaden our horizons about uh, what an approach to ethics might look like, what potential approaches to ethics could look like, and then of course you've got the Zhuangzi where they're sort of rejecting the whole idea of an ethical theory in favor of a, a direct way uh, of following Tao. Yeah, can you say a little bit more about that? Uh, what would What is this direct way of following the Tao? Okay, so uh, on my take on, on what's going on uh, in some of the Zhuangzi, um, we've got some sections of the Zhuangzi that very explicitly cite what at the time would have amounted to something like a conception of morality or at the time would have been prevailing ethical norms that, that were pretty much endorsed by everybody. And then we've got these passages in the drawings, you know, citing that and saying, we reject this. Um, th this is not how you follow Tao. It, it confuses you. Um, it, it distorts uh, your perception of what Tao might be. Uh, it's actually harmful because it interferes with your ability uh, to follow Tao. Um, and this is kind of interesting if you if you compare it, for instance, to Nietzsche. Uh, so you've got Nietzsche saying that, uh, you know, prevailing views on, on morality, as he understands them during his time period, kind of prevent outstanding uh, examples of humanity from emerging uh, and attaining the sorts of achievements that they might be able to attain. And in the Zhuangzi, that point is is radically generalized. It's not applying just to outstanding people like, you know, Beethoven. Um, or, or Wagner or whatever, it's applied to everybody. Uh, the suggestion is that focusing on prevailing uh, moral values actually interferes with your ability to follow Tao. Um, now, why would that be? Uh, well, it's because the Taoists adopt a, a pretty radically contextual uh, and holistic uh, approach to what the appropriate Tao in particular circumstances might be. Um, and at the same time, kind of model appropriate action and dull following on skills. So just as we can't give you a, any sort of specific recipe for uh, how to surf or how to ski uh, or how to ride a bicycle down a road full of potholes, the Taoists think that you can't give any kind of specific recipe at all for following the doll. Um, you just have to sort of feel your way through uh, as you go. 
Now that might sound like a, you know, a formula for anything goes and, and for failing to um, distinguish appropriate action from inappropriate action completely, just to say, okay, whatever you want to do, just go ahead and do it. But they don't appear to have embraced that implication. Uh, instead, that what they seem to do is to shift the focus of the conversation from these sort of prevailing moral values directly to the concept of Dao, a path, uh, and the concept of the, the, the capacities or facilities or powers uh, of agency um, that we apply in following paths. And so instead of talking about you know, what is benevolent or what someone's duty is, they talk about how well that person follows paths, how smoothly, how they deal with obstacles. Uh, and then the connection to um, you know, the, the prevailing conception of ethics would be how we interact with other people also involves certain sorts of paths. And we interact with others in a more appropriate way when the path that we choose in dealing with them uh, is one that is more, the Taoists would say, more harmonious or smoother uh, or allows both sides to, to proceed without conflict. Yeah, and this, I think, connects up with the theme of the next chapter in ethical cultivation, which is whether you think someone is going to be able to follow the Tao may have something to do with your view about human nature to begin with. Uh, what 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 we're inclined to do naturally without the the sort of top-down effects of, of governance or the sort of models of sage kings and so on. And so in ethical cultivation, in that chapter, you explore the, the idea of ethical cultivation, again, emphasizing that this is not just a sort of individualistic project. This is communitarian, social, and political. Um, and there's a lot, again, going on in this chapter, but maybe the place to, to focus is on this uh, debate about whether human nature is good or bad in some sense, uh, to put it starkly and simply. Um, what, what's going on there? Okay, so that, that's one of the most famous debates uh, in the history of Chinese thought. Everybody's likely to encounter that and doing a bit of reading about it. Uh, so it's, it's, worth, uh, it's worth bringing it up and talking about it a bit. Um, so, so famously, uh, the, the text named after Mengzi, uh, Mencius is associated with the view that people's xing uh, is inherently good, and uh, the, the Shunzian text is associated with the view that people's xing is inherently bad or ugly, um, and then there are a number of other views out there uh, as well. Um, the, in the Zhuangzi, we find a view that uh, prevailing moral values, uh, especially top-down, something that's imposed on people uh, from the top, um, disrupt people's Xing, uh, and that this is a bad thing. So there's a normative appeal to Xing as uh, a kind of basic good that should just be allowed to, to develop and function uh, on its own. So that, that, that core concept that they're all talking about um, sometimes gets interpreted as human nature, which, which isn't that great a translation. A better translation would be something like people's inherent nature or people's inherent dispositions. Uh, and I guess uh, if we want to pick out one very general way uh, of characterizing, uh, you know, one question that all the different views are sort of revolving around, um, the question is, is there anything about uh, our inherent dispositions, just how we tend, our pre-social dispositions, how we tend to behave if we're just left alone and not educated in some way? Is there anything about that that um, aligns with moral values that aligns with the Tao that we want people to follow such that it's fairly easy to get people to follow the Tao. And in doing so, what we're doing, you know, if, if we are acting on them in some way, what we're doing is just sort of bringing out certain tendencies that are already there. Um, and uh, there's a, a tight connection between the concept of Xing and the concept of health. Uh, so in doing so and getting them to follow the Tao, are we in effect uh, leading them to follow a more fulfilling and even healthy lifestyle. Um, so that's one set of positions. And then the other set of positions would be, no, there's nothing there that just aligns with the Tao to follow. Um, Xing is, maybe some people might say, totally neutral. Uh, the Xunzi uh, stance would be that Xing, if you just kind of leave it alone, tends people to, to behave quite badly. Um, and so in getting them to follow Tao, what we're doing is, is perhaps correcting it, uh, perhaps guiding it in certain ways. 
that wouldn't emerge uh, on their own uh, if, uh, if not for the educating influence of society and, and teachers. Uh, so so that's, that's sort of the basic structure uh, of the problem. And one prominent position is the, the Menschian position, which is that uh, in, you know, in acquiring moral values, what we're doing is bringing out tendencies that are already there in us, which uh, in fact, uh, absent negative influences are in, bar- in our environment, we would probably tend to develop anyway. And therefore, moral cultivation is a fairly easy process. Um, and that view would contrast with the Shunzian view that you know, moral cultivation is a, a process of correcting uh, bad tendencies uh, that we have. Uh, and then you have this other Taoist view out there, which is that uh, any sort of moral cultivation is a mistake. All cultivation is going to interfere with our Xing, and the right thing to do is just allow the Xing uh, to operate on its own. Hmm. And you've also got a so, number of yeah. I'm sorry. You've also no, got a few, a few positions that just ignore the issue. They, they don't. They don't think that's an important issue to discuss. Hmm. Which and which which are those? Two? Uh, well, the Maoists don't talk about it at all, and mm-hmm. there are certain parts of the there are certain parts of the Zhuangs that are very deeply invested in different views of Xing, and then there are other parts that just don't talk about it. Right, and going back to the point about how these texts are constructed, um, that doesn't suggest that it's just a section of the Zhuangzi that that ignores it. It's considering, you know, these are potentially different authors at different times that have have different concerns. Yeah, it, it seems that the authors of some of those sections were caught up in in a you know uh, a very intense debate over this concept, and that the authors of certain other sections weren't. Yeah. So speaking of debates, I, the next chapter is about epistemology. And one question that, that came to mind here is you're, you're talking about epistemology and this idea of standards and how it is that people um, or whether people can determine who is right or wrong in a, in a debate is how are these debates happening? Were they primarily in writing? Were they in court context? Were people going around town to town and debating? What was the context here? Uh, so... Um... Well, that, that connects up as well with the language and logic chapter. So there was this concept of, uh, of uh, bian, which referred to, at least some of the time, uh, to a, a public debate, uh, sometimes held in the court of, a, usually it would be a, a, a local ruler, um, a, you know, a prince uh, or a marquis, many of them were titled. Um, and that would be uh, probably two people arguing with each other in front of an audience. Um, uh, I think that also it's extremely likely that there were lots of much of more informal uh, engagements between representatives of different points of view that they would actually meet with each other, sometimes um, in court, uh, but sometimes probably they, they would just visit each other or perhaps in some cases their students would, you know, just like we do now, their graduate students would get to talking with each other and then come back and report to their teacher uh, what the, the subject of the discussion had, had, had been, and then the, the teacher and the students might discuss what a better way of responding to the other side's challenges would have been. So it's clear at the time that um, that certain courts, uh, partly because they wanted to receive better advice and partly because they just thought it was a, a, a mark of prestige, uh, would try to assemble um, think tanks, as it were. They, they would invite scholars uh, to come uh, and become retainers to their court. Uh, and these assemblies of scholars provided, I think, probably uh, one context in which uh, people would meet and debate various issues. So when they're... So the, as you said, this this connects up both the language and logic chapter and the epistemology chapter. Um, but just thinking more on, on the epistemology side... When they're thinking about what we call epistemology today, um, what are they primarily concerned with? Is this something like justification, truth, and belief, and these sorts of features of of knowledge? What what are what are the debates about epistemology? Yeah. Okay. So uh, it depends to some extent on the text. Um, different texts have different in, uh, interests. Um, one, uh, what I hope is one contribution of that chapter is I go through the epistemology of the, the annals of Liu Buwei, which I, hasn't really been studied very carefully previously. At most, there have been maybe one or, one or two publications about it, um, and, and show that they identify a series of issues 
um, that aren't really treated elsewhere. But intriguingly, that, that text itself in the preface to the text identifies knowledge uh, as one of its key uh, themes, one of the key concerns of the text as a whole. Um, now, of course, in titling that chapter epistemology, I'm, I'm stretching the scope of the term a little bit. Uh, all I mean by that is that we've got these texts that are talking about knowledge, um, and they may not be doing so in an especially theoretical way, but it's obvious that they're concerned about it and they have views about what it is. Uh, and that's enough, I think, for us to say that there's an epistemology there. Uh, in the Shunzi, there's an explicit name for what they're talking about. They call it arts of the heart or arts of the mind, um, which is a pretty good label uh, for what they want to do. Uh, and what's intriguing about that is that they see it, and that's really helpful, actually. Anything that gets called an art in early Chinese texts is something that's um, that's a, a, a practical skill of some kind or, or it's involved with practical applications of some kind. So if we were using Greek terminology, I think we'd say it was a techne, not, not an episteme. Um, and so they're seeing it as, as a, a, you know, a set of skills that you can develop uh, over time. And it's skills at getting distinctions right, basically. Um, conceptually, the, the structure is like this. In order to follow the Tao, the path, you need to distinguish what is the, the path from what is not the path. Uh, and that, that basic model of distinguish, distinguishing what is something from what is not something turns out to be like the, the fundamental move in their understanding of perception, cognition, argumentation, uh, ethical decision theory, uh, checking or justifying uh, some action you've taken. The thinking of all of those things fundamentally in terms of drawing a distinction between what is the thing in question and what's not the thing in question. And the way they understand the basis for that distinguish, what you're doing when you're drawing that distinction um, is performing uh, an operation of pattern recognition. You're recognizing what is or is not the same sort of pattern. So it's all based on drawing analogies, recognizing similarities, uh, and drawing analogies. So you have knowledge when you are very, very good at reliably getting all of those distinctions right, recognizing what the patterns are, which amounts to recognizing similarities in things and how things are probably going to keep going and how they're related to other sorts of things. Uh, and so knowledge is understood as being organized taxonomically um, in terms of drawing similarities, uh, drawing distinctions between what, what is or is not similar. Um, and uh, possessing knowledge is a matter of possessing a competence in drawing distinctions between what is or is not similar. And what's intriguing about that is that uh, in, in none of these early texts does the concept of knowledge involve a justification condition. Um, so they don't think of knowledge as uh, you know, some sort of psychological attitude or state uh, that then requires some sort of justification and also must correspond to how things stand. Uh, instead, they see it as just a reliable ability to get things right. Um, and the way that they handle the problem of lucky guesses is by building reliability into their concept of knowledge. So the concept of knowledge is, is inherently diachronic in that uh, typically when they're talking about knowledge, they're not going to talk about uh, have, you know, one particular belief held at one time instant as counting as knowledge. They're going to be looking at competence over time. Uh, and, and say, attribute knowledge to a person on the grounds that they're consistently drawing a certain sort of distinction uh, correctly. Right. And so, um, again, we're, I've, we've, a few minutes left here, so I don't, I don't want to um, take up too much more of your time, but I do want to get to the language and logic uh, discussion. So, so, again, though, what we've seen here is the going back to the Tao, that seems to be important in understanding what's going on in epistemology, this idea of, of competence with uh, – a, uh, a techne, a skill, uh, following a path. Uh, the the other thing you mentioned that I wanted to pick up on going to the language and logic chapter is about distinctions, um, and the idea of sort of uh, rectifying names is something that comes up a lot and seems to involve something like distinctions about um, groupings or getting getting things right in some sense. Can you unpack? that a little bit um I, real quick too i just have one one aside that maybe you want to riff on a little bit is that 
there's this there's this great story about rectifying names in terms of uh, a rabbit and its parts and i thought that that was pretty funny because of you know quine has this famous thought experiment about govagai meaning undetached rabbit parts um but i i I took it that the the lesson wasn't that rectifying names was somehow about indeterminacy of translation or something like that. It's, it's something it's something else is going on here, right? Yeah, it, it's funny though that in, it, I mean, there's a sense in which rectifying names is is an attempt to fix um, the reference of names. Um, so, uh, so you'll recall that 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 Quine said a lot of people. Uh, what, Quine also talked about the inscrutability of reference, right? And, and he said that a lot of people uh, conflate the issue of the indeterminacy of translation and the inscrutability of reference. And he says, no, even if you were really, really sure about the translation reference, there's still some degree of, of indeterminacy. Um, maybe I should have said indeterminacy of reference. Uh, and, and rectifying names is, to some extent, uh, an attempt to make reference determinate. And... Th- there are voices in, in these texts, again, associated with the Taoists, because they, they just criticize all of the prevailing views about everything. Um, the Taoists are the people out there saying, no, no, there's more to it than that. Or no, no, you're making assumptions here that maybe you can't justify. And the, the Taoists are the ones who come along and say, no, we can use language to communicate with each other, even if reference is indeterminate. You don't need to try to make reference determinate. And in fact, you can't. Um, so there's a bit of a Quinean flavor to that position. Uh, so uh, the, the the quick way of saying just a few words about early Chinese approaches to language is that um, I don't know we we take introduction to philosophy or we take philosophy of language and in the first few weeks tend to find ourselves focusing on the speech act of reporting how things stand the cat is on the mat something like that um, and so we start thinking of the paradigmatic speech act as a speech act in in which you you. Uh, you state a fact of some kind. And uh, in, in early Chinese philosophical discourse, they thought of the paradigmatic speech act as an instruction when you tell someone to do something. Um, and so a lot of what they have to say about language follows from that. Um, if you've studied you know, philosophy of language or the history of 20th century philosophy, if you think of the example that occurs very early uh, in Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations, where he, he describes a simple language game where a builder is shouting instructions to his apprentice, and the apprentice has to pick up various uh, bricks or slabs or blocks and bring them over to the builder, they're thinking of a scenario more like that. So this whole rectification of names thing, uh, or correcting names, uh, is a discussion of how in order to interpret instructions or laws, people need to be able to pick out the reference of the terms that are used in the instructions or laws. And that's why in the famous passage in the Confucian Analects, it says that if you, if you don't rectify names, ultimately people will be unable to move hand or foot. How strange, right? If you, if you don't clarify the reference of names, people won't be able to move. That seems like a weird thing to say. But when you understand that they're talking about things like interpreting laws, it, uh, you know, imagine you had, you know, a law was promulgated that said that any anyone who does X will be you know punished by death, and nobody can figure out what X is, so they don't know what they can or cannot do. So they're petrified, so they're unable to move. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that it's, it's getting at. That because you know the speech act in question is one of following a rule, following an instruction, following a law. In order to do it, you need to be able to fix the reference of the terms at least to a sufficient extent, but you know what stone the builder is calling for uh, or precisely what kind of activity, what sort of conduct the law is forbidding. Well, so, so that you can, again, back to the first chapter, so that you can follow the Tao. Exactly. So the, the, you know, the second, so I just said, if you wanted to say one thing about early Chinese conceptions <laughs> of language, you'd say that the speech act they're focusing on is giving instructions, right? And then, and then the second thing would you say you would say is exactly that that they're understanding language primarily in terms of its function in guiding action, such that you can follow the Tao. So they're thinking primarily of the purpose of language uh, to be guiding action rather than reporting how things stand. Um, now that's not to say that. That, you know, that when they get around to treating the functions of, of terms, for instance, of names, as they call them, um, that they don't also explain uh, descriptive function, reporting functions of language. Of course they do. 
Um, you know, if, if you don't have an account of the reporting function of language, then your account of the action guiding function of language is not going to work. There's just going to be just huge holes in it. Um, so they do that as well. But the primary focus, as you say, is on how you use language to guide people to follow Dell. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time, Chris. Thank you very much. Uh, let's have a last question. Can you tell us what you're working on now? Right at the moment, I'm, I'm basically working on two book projects. Um, one is uh, possibly an expansion of, uh, of chapters five and six of this book. Uh, and the title would be something like Language, Mind, and World in Early Chinese Thought. Uh, and the other is uh, a, a very deep dive into the, the Taoist concept of uh, wu-wei, um, taking no action or non-doing, uh, trying to tease out just exactly what it's referring to in different texts and what the implications are for philosophy of mind. Great. Well, I'll look forward to seeing those out in print sometime in the future, and I thank you for your time. Uh, thanks very much, Malcolm. It was a pleasure to talk with you.